0: You are not your own. You were bought at a price. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. This morning, I'd like to begin a little differently than normal. And that is, I'd like to start with an imaginative exercise. I want to invite you to imagine yourself as a young child. Maybe six, seven, eight years old. And imagine that you have a father, a father who loves and cares for you, who is strong and seems powerful, who is decent and good. He's a lot of fun, but there is strength to his love for you. Perhaps you can imagine yourself playing in his study or office, your toys among the carpet beneath his desk, it warm and safe there. He's a lot bigger than you. Imagine as well that you have an older brother who also shares in the powerful love of your dad. One day, something happens with you and your brother. For whatever reason, not fully understanding yourself, you lash out, you physically push him. And as it happens, your brother falls he falls hard, maybe even down the stairs. Whatever the precise circumstance, the result is that he is hurt, hurt badly. The result is flashing lights and frenetic activity around your brother's broken body. The hushed but frantic conversation of adults, a trip to the hospital, and then sorrow. Your brother dies, you pushed him, and he is not coming back. You know the heartbreak, the anguish, this causes your father, and you are terrified. Not because he is bad or harsh, but precisely because of his love and goodness. And your fear, your anxiety, your terror is not about a specific punishment. This goes far beyond punishment. There's nothing to be done. How could your father look upon you with the same love after what has happened? Your fear is rooted not in a specific act of punishment, but in the loss of love, the loss of place with your father how could he have anything to do with you how might he call you child the grief and anguish are heavy over the house it is quiet and still it is intolerable so you walk down the long hall to the door of your father's study fearful and trembling expecting that this too is the last time you will darken this door You open it, ready to find and face your father's anguish and anger, his rejection and condemnation. And what do you see? What do you find? You find your brother, miraculously healthy and hearty, looking stronger than you have ever seen joyfully sitting on the lap of your father, who looks upon him with delight and wonder. They are together, enraptured in love, joy, and satisfaction. Shocked, you hold back. But your brother just then looks to you and says, Sister, brother. And your father draws near and says, My child it is to this kind of imperishable love this kind of indestructible life this grace that we come this morning to baptize elise and josie into this kind of love this kind of life it is to such a father To such an older brother that we say as the church, with Samuel in our Old Testament reading, here I am. To him and his life we offer ourselves. What a glorious thing. What does it mean to live in the light of such love and life? To live in such acceptance? What does it mean to live as someone who has experienced such A miracle. It is to these kinds of questions that we are looking to answer today and over the coming weeks. Over the next three weeks, we will be looking at the middle chapters of the New Testament book, 1 Corinthians, looking at what it means to live in the light of Christ, in the light of the gospel. This miraculous thing has happened. Jesus, his life, his way of being in the world, his death and resurrection and ascension, and we have benefited The kingdom of God has come near and we are the beneficiaries. What now? Our text this morning from 1 Corinthians 6 is in many ways outrageous. It touches on sensitive topics. It conflicts with contemporary sensibility. But in these verses, Paul, the writer, is specifically seeking to address these kinds of questions about the shape of life in light of the miracle that the gospel is. And for all its challenges, these verses describe a way of life that is saturated, point us to a way of life that is immersed in the grace and goodness of God. This morning, I wanna get to that good and gracious way of life by addressing some of our possible objections to what we read here. As we address some of what might be off-putting to our modern ears, I think we can get at the goodness of the life that Jesus makes possible. We can better understand how it is that we are to live in the truth of the gospel. There are three objections I want to focus on today, and they are captured by these three terms. They're doozies. Legalism, sex, and autonomy. We'll take these in turn in the moments we have left the first thing that might not sit well with us today is how legalistic what Paul is describing here might seem. Paul is known, as some of you will know, as the apostle of grace, announcing freedom from obligation to Israel's law, announcing the the free gift of salvation to the nations But here, there is this seemingly legalistic or transactional quality to what he's describing. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, act this way. Don't act this way. It seems, perhaps, to sit at odds with the notion that we are saved by grace, by this free gift. Our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 1 exists this morning in dialogue with our old testament reading with the passage from first corinthians and with the baptisms that we are about to participate in jesus says to philip extends himself a grace philip does nothing to earn this invitation but jesus says to philip follow me to this philip nathaniel the other disciples along with samuel in our old testament reading in a matter of words say, here I am. Their life with Jesus, their following of him is embodied and full contact. It's a holistic thing. There is no abstract or merely verbal way of following Jesus. Baptism is a visceral, physical thing. It involves the whole of the person, you get wet. If it's immersion, you get very wet. It captures this quality. No part of life, no part of the body is left out. In the same way, Paul is emphasizing that union with Jesus, that trust in the promises of God informs and affects the entire pattern of one's life. There's no merely verbal or cognitive or abstract way of believing. Your beliefs, your convictions give shape to your life. What you trust in informs the rhythm and pattern of your days. This wordplay is lost in our English translation, but through this section in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is explicitly saying, the justified will act justly. Those rendered righteous will act in righteousness He's saying it is impossible for that to not be the case. Double, double negative there. As the child in our imagined scenario that we began with, the, the pattern of life that would follow from this remarkable moment of acceptance of grace would not be one of obligation, would not be one of seeking to earn the grace, the power, the love that you've experienced. That kind of life would actually be disrespectful of your father and your brother, a denigration of all that had taken place, the miracle of it. But that moment, that acceptance would have an effect. It would change the way you thought, you felt, and lived. It would have a bearing on how you exist in the world, how you related to others. Yes, to your father and brother, but also to everyone else. It would be transformative, it would shape, the years to come. Over the Christmas holidays, our family watched the movie from the 80s, Babette's Feast. It's based on a short story, a Danish short story that we'd read a few months previously. It's written by a woman who wrote under the pen pen name Isaac Dennison, but the story is one of a refugee from France to this austere, stern community in Denmark, and this remarkable, lavish feast she eventually throws for the community there. And the community there is, as you might expect, like any human community, marked by sin and difficulty. I remember in particular, there are two elderly men who decades ago had a business dealing where something went wrong. One of them cheated the other you cheated me out of lumber and resentment bitterness on both sides has set in they barely talk to each other can barely stand the sight of each other and then on the night of this feast on this lavish feast drunk on the grace of it something changes you cheated me out of that lumber you rascal I know I did, I'll make it up to you. And they laugh in the light of what they have received. Something is different. The way they relate to one another has been changed. What Paul is describing here is our persistent habitual modes of being that do not correspond with the life of grace that we have received that do not correspond with the righteousness, the goodness that we have tasted in Jesus. He's describing a kind of life that doesn't comport for the people of grace, a life driven instead by self-gratification, by rapacious appetites, by grasping greed. Looking at the whole of 1 Corinthians, it seems clear that the people of Corinth were marked by a certain status anxiety. They were worried, insecure about their place in the pecking order, and their behaviors then reflected that, corresponded with that insecurity. Greed, using others for their own ends, ignoring the needs of others. Arrogance, deeply disordered relationships. A notable element is that the the list of wrongdoers in verses 9 and 10 in the original language has 10 items listed. In that inclusion of 10, scholars have seen a reference to the 10 commandments given in Exodus 20, given to inform the life of Israel as a people delivered from slavery, delivered to be free and holy. And of course, the commandments come after the Exodus, after God's deliverance. They're not given that the people of Israel Could earn salvation. They are downstream of their salvation. In the same way, the life of justice and goodness Paul is calling the Corinthians toward flows from the grace and goodness they have received in Jesus. You have been washed. You have been sanctified, set apart. You have been justified. You're baptized, he says. One writer speaking, to the status anxiety that marked out this church in Corinth, paraphrases Paul this way. You are accepted. You belong. You already have privileged status. This is already true. This is who I see you as. Live in line with who you are. As we come to the baptisms today, this same word is for us, is spoken over you and me. There is the same call, the same invitation. Step out of insecurity. Step out of the chaotic and destructive ways of being that that life produces and step more fully into the acceptance, the belonging, the privileged status that is ours in Jesus Christ. But you might say, what about all the sex talk here? When I was 18 or 19, I remember playing the game Consequences with a group of friends, mostly from church. Consequences is this word game where one person writes a sentence and passes the paper to the person on the right or left. And then that next person draws a picture corresponding to the sentence they've just read and then folds the top of the paper so you can't see the original sentence only the image, and then passes it on, where the next person, in turn, writes a sentence reflective of that picture. And you pass it all the way around the circle, and by the end, you read out the story, and it's ridiculous, it's quite funny. This particular time, we were a bunch of hormonal teenagers. And most of the stories that we ended up with were, I wanna emphasize, not explicit, but shall we say, charged somewhat. And there was this one friend there who was older, who was married, and at the time wasn't a Christian. And they noted this uniformly charged quality to each of our stories. And at one point, I remember them laughing and saying, matter of factly, you're all repressed. You all have one thing on the brain. Reading this text from 1 Corinthians, we may be inclined to say that Paul has one thing on the brain. He highlights here sexual immorality. And to us in our contemporary setting, we might be tempted to say, well, this is a product of repression, of him being this uptight puritanical sort. Get outside, Paul. Talk to a girl. Lighten up. In response to this inclination, a couple of thoughts. First, the list in verses 9 and 10, the list there is evenly split. Between actions of greed and grasping, and specifically sexual sins. Five and five. And while there is a focus in verses 12 to 20 on sexual immorality, in the verses just preceding our reading this morning, Paul's focus is on how two members of the community are suing each other, are in deep conflict, and in public have a lawsuit between themselves. That is, throughout the letter, Paul addresses disorder in the church in Corinth that is both sexual and not he gives attention to it all second paul does not consider sex to be uniformly dirty uniformly negative that's reflective it reflected in our reading this morning and especially as you get to 1 corinthians 7 he does not consider it to be this terrible thing that human beings have to endure simply to propagate the species his point is Not that sex is dirty or bad, but that it is powerful. The third thing, we should perhaps be not so quick to dismiss the attention Paul gives to sex as merely the product of an ancient worldview that we have grown beyond. In the coffee shop where I was writing these very words, I would venture to guess that 90% of the pop songs I heard playing were focused on the very same topic not necessarily dirty, but about being desired, of feeling desire, about physical intimacy. Currently, there is a major movie garnering commercial and critical attention, Poor Things, which I have not seen, but I have read and heard about. And it is in a significant way focused upon the liberating power of sex, to quote one critic, on its power to provoke maturity and new epiphanies, to paraphrase another. Paul's focus here is a product of his recognition, a recognition that we in our culture share, that sex is powerful. You heard it here first, Emma Stone and the Apostle Paul agree. (laughs) That it matters, that it has significance. It is among the most intimate acts that a human being can participate in. In the language of verse 16, it makes two one flesh. The Spice Girls were right to become one. It is among the most creative, formative things that human beings can undertake to do. Forging a union and possibly generating life. It has ramifications for ourselves, for the entire communities to which we belong. To the question, is there such a thing as sex with no strings attached? Paul, in the entire corpus of the Bible, say sex itself is a string. And so if the whole of our lives is included in baptism, if our trust in Jesus has bearing on the whole of our lives, how could it not include this most intimate and most powerful of human undertakings? Paul's entire argument in this section is that our bodies and what we do with them matter and have meaning. He is paying you and I a high compliment. The Corinthians have been living and acting out of conviction that our bodies do not matter that they are simply vessels, tools of temporary use to be used for gratification, for delight, and then disposed of. And sex then is just one more appetite, one more physical need, going to the bathroom, eating food, sleeping with someone. But Paul's point, and in fact, he argues, the point of the resurrection is that our bodies endure. And by faith, the whole of who we are has been united with Christ. God loves your body as he loves his own. He has intention for your body that extends into eternity. Therefore, what is done and not done with your body matters. It is a gift created by God. At the cross, your body has been redeemed, such that it will endure in the kingdom that is coming. His exhortation is to treat your body as though is it is a part, as though it is a part of Jesus worthy of the same honor and reverence we would give him. And this is subtle, but he says it has a communal aspect. The body to which you belong is the church. That's the body of Christ. You're a member of Christ. You're a member of the church. This is what you are baptized into. And so, he says, your sexuality is to be expressed in a way that reflects that unity, that honors and blesses is beneficial, he writes, for the community. The personal is political was a statement coined in the 1960s in association with second-wave feminism. It came to be used by broader movements, student movements, and it found perhaps its greatest expression in the 1980s in the formation of the AIDS quilt. Perhaps you're familiar with this, but individuals would create a patch of the AIDS quilt, a three-by-six-foot patch. Reflective of someone they cared about, a loved one who had died, someone they were connected to, someone who had meaning personally. And then these were woven together, thousands, hundreds, such that the entire quilt covered the entire mall by the Washington Monument. This statement that personal experience had collective power, had political, social implications. Whatever the political goals of those who use this phrase originally, it captures a truth, socially and spiritually, that we may need reminding of. That our seemingly private experiences and actions have linkage with the community, the society around us. Decisions to not watch pornography, to faithfully steward our sexuality as dating single persons, to practice chastity in the context of our marriages, and be devoted, mind, heart, and body to this one person. All of that has a bearing on the whole, a bearing on one another. My body, my choice, is not an adequate ethic for those who are in Christ. We are baptized into, we are called into a consideration of what is honoring and beneficial for one another to actions that reflect our union with Jesus and with the community around us. The term that Paul uses in verse 15 about taking a member of Christ and uniting them with someone else refers to this destructive tearing, a violent rending of the body. These are the terms by which we might understand the reality of sexual sin, its effect on us, ourselves, in our relation to Jesus, and the effect it has, perhaps not immediately seen, upon the church, the body of Christ. It's because of this power that the Christian faith's countercultural perspective upon rightly ordered sexuality became not just this peripheral matter, but foundational for the early church. Kyle Harper, a historian at the University of Oklahoma, has written that for the early church, the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, went hand in hand with their revolutionary ideas about sexual activity and its place exclusively within the monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. For them, the act became something more than just a physical appetite. It was understood to be formative, powerful, meaning-making, such that it should be reserved only for this binding covenant relationship of faithfulness and care. Now I'm going to put my foot on the third rail here for just a moment. Paul includes under his definition here of wrongdoing, same-sex sexual relations. And in so doing, puts himself deeply out of step with contemporary cultural mores. To such an extent that I know for some of us the idea is incredibly hard to stomach, perhaps even disqualifying, of the entire moral project he's on about. We don't agree. Love is love, to use a phrase that is widely known. Now, as with many slogans, that statement is not entirely true. The love that you have for your child, the love that I have for my daughter, is not the same love that I share with my spouse, nor is the love I share with my spouse the same that I have with my friends. You don't have to read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves to know this. Beyond that, Paul's contention is that love here referring to sexual relationships must be beneficial. That is in line with God's purposes revealed in scripture and woven into creation. Beyond that, I'm not gonna get into the argument for why it is that this church holds to a traditional biblical sexual ethic. But I do wanna say is that it's not irrelevant. It's not a merely peripheral issue. In line with Paul, in line with the history of the church, It is deeply connected to how the gospel is understood and proclaimed. And what I really wanna stress today, however, is that Paul places same-sex sexual relations right alongside all sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Pornography, adultery, premarital sex, and alongside acts of greed and gluttony, swindling, slander, All uniformly as expressions of unrighteousness. That is no worse, not reserved for special sanction or condemnation. And that then means, what's more, is that Paul's assumption is clear that people who have engaged in all of these various ways of life, unrighteousness across the board, are now called a part of the church. All have been drawn to share in the life of the gospel all are part of the body of Christ. That is, no one because of what they've done is uniquely disqualified or excluded, but all are justified, belonging, set apart in the same way that we who are unrighteous have now been. In Jesus Christ, anyone who stands numbered in the life that Paul outlines in verses nine and 10, anyone who finds themselves oriented toward any particular expression of unrighteousness listed there, can now be called beloved brother, beloved sister, son and daughter. All of them can hear from him in Christ, my child. And it's that language of family that we began with and that might, as we close, help us understand the question of autonomy. We live in a moment where expressive individualism is considered the way towards salvation throw off the fetters, be who you are. And anything that hinders that is considered oppressive. But the language here of not being our own is rooted not in some oppression or rooted even exclusively in this commercial transactional understanding. Rather, it is rooted in the acceptance that is available to all in Jesus. You're not your own. By that, Paul, means that you are beloved of God through Jesus and you have been bought with a price. That means you are of such great value that Jesus, that God the Father looked upon you and said, worth the cost. Your life in its wholeness, your body, all that you are can be, if you're baptized, has been drawn into the grace and goodness, the good purposes of God, into the freedom that he has for you. And so Paul's message is, don't be mastered by anything else. Live into the freedom that is yours in Jesus. We began with this family image, a child and father. I ripped that off from a theologian named Philip Carey. But we began there because the language of justification, sanctification is so common to us that it can obscure the revolutionary relational reality that Paul is describing that's available in Jesus To be made holy is to be enrolled in the family of God. To be justified is to be forgiven. To not have our failures of love, our deficiencies of goodness held against us. Our tragic, self-destructive, inward bent that we all share is no longer determinative. It's not held against us. So we have been accepted, freed for something better and more lasting. All of this is to be plunged. Immersed into the indestructible life, the imperishable love of God, it is to be baptized into these enduring realities. As we come now to celebrate the baptisms of Elise and Josie, let us rejoice in the freedom and belonging in God that is theirs and ours in Jesus. And let us more fully live together in the light of God's life and love for the benefit of one another and to his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.